the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Now, I'm really sorry that we didn't get an episode out last week. I had a couple of uh, medical issues which had cropped up, which uh, stopped me from going both to work and from getting a podcast episode out. Um, But we are happy to be back for this week. And we've got two episodes for you. Uh, The first is with former United Future Party leader Peter Dunn. And the second is with former Labour Party leader Andrew Little. Look, it's been a... Uh, some would say tumultuous election uh, or lead up to the election this year uh, with three party leaders stepping down. Now that had altered some of our schedules. We had Materia Today step down. Luckily we had already interviewed James Shaw uh, and then obviously Peter Dutter, Andrew Little also stepping down and we had also uh, recorded episodes with both of those leaders. Now we're still releasing them this week and the reason is this, that they're still relevant. The concepts talked about and the issues talked about within um, both episodes weren't week by week, day by day kind of um, episodes examining the blows of the election. They're big, high-level concepts. What are the values of these parties? What are their focuses for the election? Why should a young professional vote for this particular party or that particular party? So they're still relevant on an ongoing basis as opposed to um, just dealing with what's happening in politics on a week by week or day by day basis. So I hope uh, both of them are relevant in terms of talking about how you might vote uh, this upcoming Saturday. Of course, early voting has already started and you can enrol by going up to the polling booths, but you can't this coming Saturday. So if you're keen to get get out and vote, um, please do. It's important that your voice is heard. And I hope that these, both of these episodes uh, may in some part uh, help you make your decision. Of course, we have already interviewed all of the uh, other party leaders, uh, except New Zealand First and Winston Peters. Um, So head back and listen to all of those. We've interviewed everybody from the Prime Minister to David Seymour to Marama Fox. That was a great episode, by the way. Um, So check them out. Also, check us out on Facebook. We are NZ Young Professionals Podcast, or our website is nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Enjoy these episodes. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and today down the line we have Labour Party leader Andrew Little. Andrew, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ed. Uh, Andrew, first of all, thanks so much for coming along on the podcast. And as mentioned before we started recording, today is all about understanding your and the Labour Party's top priorities and how they directly or indirectly impact New Zealand's young professionals. But first of all, before we jump into policy, I want to talk a little bit about you and the Labour Party, because um, unlike some of the other leaders of the New Zealand political parties, you haven't necessarily been around for 10 years before I was born. So I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your background and your conversion to the Labour Party, because you weren't always a Labour Party man, were you? Well, I grew up in a, a very strong National Party supporting household. In fact, my father was a uh, on the local committee for the party, and at the age of 10, one of the first political acts I did was to deliver leaflets for the local National Party candidate. Um, but I was 16 at the time of the Springbok tour, and that was, um, you know, as most people who lived through it will say, it was a, 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 a change in New Zealand, that Springbok tour, the issues, the debate we had around it, the protests and so on. And even though I, my father, he was National Party supporting, conservative in many respects, 
the one aspect he did have was he, he did have a view about everybody having a place in society and in the community. But when it came to the Springbok tour, he didn't seem to think that. He's, and he, he supported the South African regime, the apartheid regime. And everything that I had learned and grown up about and I guess appreciated about New Zealand, about its egalitarianism, it just didn't, I, I just couldn't get it. And it was at that point that I think I found myself diverging from my parents' political views and, and kind of just went on my own journey um, to to you know, be very clear about what I believed in. And when I left school, uh, school and went to university, I got involved in student politics. I was a, a student political leader at university. Um, and then when I left university with my law degree and my arts degree, I went to work for a trade union doing employment law. That was at the time of the Employment Contracts Act, again, a very divisive piece of legislation. But I'd made the decision that I wanted to use my skills and talents for people who wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, expect to have a voice, and, and that's what I've committed myself to. Mm. And I, re- I read something online, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, so hopefully you can set the record straight for me, that um, you were working as a labourer in, in Taranaki, um, and the, the contractor was using less concrete than um, he was legally obliged to. Uh, did that in any way inform your, your political leanings? I, look at that. I had a lot of experiences where I saw things where people, you know, people in business, and look, no, don't worry, I've met a heap of people doing amazing things in business, but some people have business practices that are about, you know, getting away with what they can, at, at, you know, they, they get the benefit of it. And I, I was 17 when I saw that happening, and I, it just sort of sits in your mind, you think, hmm, is this kind of, is this right? Is, is you know, it didn't seem right to me. So, um, uh, but, you know, in my trade union role, I worked alongside a lot of business, big and small. Amazing business leaders, very ethical, very driven about their business or the one that they're responsible for. Equally, I saw some who I think, you know, the business practices were pretty bad. And you got to, you know, I, by that time, I had the skills and the, the ability to stand up to that and say, listen, and call it out and say that that's not right. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, I was watching you on Q&A yesterday morning, and I don't want to necessarily dig into that, that issue, but again, you, you used that similar phrase a lot, it just didn't feel right, this doesn't seem right, you know, we want to do the right thing. Would you say that's pretty much the moral guide for your, your policies and how you make your decisions on a day-to-day basis about, does this feel right? I, I, I'm confident that I have a very strong moral code, which is about people and people being treated fairly and... And I certainly, in employment, obviously, I have a view about that. Um, but equally, consumers and you know, taxpayers, and no matter what it is, um, people who expect leaders and those who know all the information and are there to make decisions, that they do the right thing and at, at the right time, too. I, I, I'm very strongly driven by that. And I guess through my contact with business and some of the own, my own business training that I've done, I'm very conscious of conflicts of interest, and I know uh, certainly around here, even with some of my colleagues, I've had to say, right, you, you can't be involved in that because of you know X, Y, and Z. Um, I think I set a very high standard when it comes to, to those sorts of things, but I am very driven by a sense of moral right and wrong. I make no apology for that. And I think that's been very consistent. Just for example, um, over the last couple of weeks, you've always mentioned that MPs are, are different from, from the public. There are certain privileges, and um, because yeah. of that, um, th- there are ethical grounds that you need a, or standards that you need to hold yourself to. Um, uh, go for it. 
yeah, no, yeah, so I think I think that's right. You know, politicians we don't get the best run uh, at the best of times. And, you know, <laughs> the Reader's Digest do their surveys, and we're always ranked towards the bottom. But regardless of all that, you know, we it is an enormous privilege to serve in public office and elected public office. We get access to all sorts of information. We get, you know, um, uh, we can travel anywhere to meet anybody who's got an issue, um, and we have a responsibility, in my view, to the community to. Uh, not not to be perfect. No one's perfect, but to to pursue a set of standards of behaviour that ought to be the example. And look, we're never going to be perfect, and all of us will kind of slip off the perch at some point. But sometimes there are standards where you know people go so below that standard that you've got to say, you know, you cannot you cannot carry on because your judgment is clearly so flawed. Mm. And I think that's that's just so important for for any leader of any country um, to to hold themselves to those standards. If if I may, I'd like to make one um, observation about how you're potentially a little bit similar to to John Key, if I may say this, in that. Um, he was in Parliament for two terms before he came, became Prime Minister, one term before he became the leader of the National Party. And it's quite s- similar for yourself. Even though you were involved as President of the Labour Party um, before coming into Parliament, um, you, you had one term in Parliament, became leader of the Labour Party, and then potentially after this election cycle may be um, New Zealand's Prime Minister. Is, is there something in that? Is there something about vote, voters um, want, want new blood in the Prime Minister's office? I think people look around and uh, what they want to see is, is people with a, a strong set of values um, and whatever you think about John Key, he certainly um, communicated a set of values. Very, He always had this very positive, upbeat view about mm-hmm. New Zealand and its prospects. People will judge, you know, what he's done in his time in office on that. And I think people do want to know that um, people at senior levels of politics, not everybody is tied to necessarily the old ways of doing things or old habits that, that you know, you do bring a freshness of approach to things. Um, look, it, you know, it's a big step up. I make, you know, no bones about that. It's been a challenging two and a half years for me, exciting, and, and I'm, I am a driven person. Uh, if, if I look back at my working life, I am used to being thrown in the deep end and just kind of making it work. That's what I do. Um, but, yeah, I think people are looking for people who can bring a set of perspectives that aren't just about the, the political ideologies of the day. You've got to, you know, anchored in a set of political values, of course you are, but I think in New Zealand we have a level of pragmatism that we expect of our politicians that you can break out, do, um, you know, do, do what's right um, that may not totally line up with um, a more ideological view of politics at the time. Mm. And I'd almost say that that, that hardworking attitude uh, probably comes down to being a good Taranaki boy like myself. Um, and just on that topic, I want to ask a, a quick, almost almost self-interested question, um, which is that both both the leaders of um, the major political parties now, Labour and National, um, come from quite small towns. Um, the Prime Minister from Dipton, yourself from New Plymouth. Um, and with, with the backdrop of urban migration um, and uh, more and more people leaving the, the rural centres, um, are, are you concerned about increasing uh, automation and that trend towards urbanisation? Certainly not concerned about automation. I mean, even, even as a union leader, I always took the view that any anything that's going to take mundane, repetitive jobs, um, out, you know, away from people, and and so that you know we can create more interesting, personally satisfying work. That, that's mm-hmm. actually a good thing. Um, in terms of the regions, I think actually the regions have been 
undersold um, in the last few years, and we can do better. I mean, we ought to be attracting uh, more business investment and mm-hmm. therefore more people to the regions. It would certainly alleviate pressure off some of the bigger cities. Um, that's the, you know, We have a regional development policy that is totally about that. Our immigration policy makes a specific play towards using uh, regional needs and regional skill shortages as a basis to manage immigration as opposed to, you know, allowing everybody just to conglomerate and settle in Auckland and some of the bigger cities. So I think more needs to be done in those regional areas. And look, they've all got their strengths. Um, And some will need to find new strengths, if, if I could put it that way. And the central government ought to be playing a role to encourage investment in that. Mm, and I think that's a very practical view. Just for the listeners um, listening, I guess, who might not know your regional development uh, policy or your immigration policy, do you want to just quickly um, mention the highlights from those? Yeah, so for regional development, we have a $200 million regional development fund. I've already announced uh, uh, two or three things that we would use it for. So, for example, we will co-invest with other investors in a centre of digital excellence for Dunedin. There's a lot of game software developers um, down there and they're saying there's a facility that they uh, could usefully have that would make a big difference. They could grow that industry from $100 million a year to a $1 billion a year. Um, In Gisborne, I've talked about a $20 million co-investment into a plant to build prefabricated housing because they're surrounded by timber. They can do that. That'll help us deal with our housing shortage issue. And in Whanganui, I've talked about a $3 million uh, infrastructure investment in their port, uh, an aspect of their port, that it means that they can redevelop that port, put businesses there, and and get uh, job generating activities back there. So, it's it's things like that. We're looking at co investment, um, loans, or in some cases a grant for infrastructure to get job generating activities into the regions. And on immigration, it's about look, you know we've accepted the view that. With quadrupling immigration just over the last four years, we can't continue at that pace while we have such an infrastructure deficit. So we're talking about slowing that down. But we're saying using use immigration to fill genuine skill shortages, especially in the regions, but use the regions to decide what that is. Um, and then let's get on and build the infrastructure that we know is in desperate short supply and is causing the constraints that we've got at the moment, particularly in our big cities like Auckland, Hamilton and Toto. Mm. I 100% agree. And uh, just to move on to your top three priorities and how they impact New Zealand's young professionals, what would you, what would you say those top priorities are? No question housing. I mean, it's an issue for everybody, but I know a lot of young people, in fact, I was talking to uh, a teacher the other night um, at the rugby who was saying, look, he's on a reasonably good salary, his wife's on a reasonably good salary, salary. they're a young couple, they live in Auckland, they feel they have no prospect ever of owning their own home, That's that's been their dream. Um, so getting that right for people to afford to buy their first home again is is one of our big challenges as a country. We have our Kiwi Build policy. That's a build, about building 100,000 affordable homes over a 10-year period. There's a whole lot of mechanics around that. I won't go into that sort of detail. Mm-hmm. But that is our challenge. We've also got to build more social housing. I mean, one of the impacts of the housing crisis at the moment is rental accommodation is in short supply. People can't afford the rents, and so we have a growing number of homeless mainly who are in overcrowded housing. Um, After that, education, because that is about the future. One of the things we did when I first uh, became leader, I I set up our Future of Work Commission, which is about looking 20 to 30 years out, 
seeing the impact of technology, the sort of jobs we expect to be around and what we need to do to prepare ourselves for that. Of course, there's questions of investment and what have you, but the, the one thing that everybody who was involved in that, business leaders, academic leaders and others, agreed on was we've got to get education right, an education system that's delivering the skills and talents and some of the skills, like you no know, resilient skills for young people by the time they leave school, um, that's part of that, as well as our three years free post-school education and training policy. All of that came out of that Future of Work Commission project. And the other is, um, I mean, we could talk about economic policy generally, but there's some things that are that we have to take seriously. And one is ramp up our infrastructure investment. And it can't just be looking at, you know, 10 years anymore. It's got to be looking out 50 years and, and to 100 years and biting the bullet and saying, look, this stuff never gets cheaper. But if we want to plan for good cities, well-designed cities, well-equipped cities, we're going to have to start making those investments now. Uh, I'm equally aware that you can't just load everything onto the rate payer or the taxpayer. We have to look at creative ways of financing new infrastructure, and that's what we're up for. We'll, we'll make some specific announcements about that in, in the next few weeks, but I'm totally committed to um, that investment because we, we've got to get stuff going and moving and uh, you know cities that are sustainable um, and we only do that by investing now in those things. Fantastic and how do each of those directly impact um, New Zealand's young professionals? I'd, I'd love to you, for you to really really speak speak to them. The young professionals you guys are, are the future You're, you've got you know, 30, 40 years of your working life ahead of you. Uh, we want this to be a country that continues to generate opportunities. And the truth is you're of a generation where those opportunities are only ever going to to grow and develop and uh, exponentially. And you're going to see things that none of us can see today. Um, but in order to take advantage of that, we've got to have cities and a country that can absorb that and absorb your talents and provide that sort of opportunity. Because that's that's what we have to do. And we, look, we ought to be. We're, we're such an amazing country. We've got to stop thinking that distance, you know, in terms of tyranny of distance and that it's a disadvantage. Actually, we might find that it's an advantage now with modern technology and communications technology, the ability to do stuff anywhere in the world um, and develop expertise and specialties that uh, you know we, maybe we haven't thought of before so that's you know if we can get if Peter Beck can set up a company that sends rockets into the sky and commercially deploys satellite technology man there ought, ought not to be anything that can stop us so um, uh, we get infrastructure right we get this a, a great place to live and everybody gets a chance to own their own home or have a home that they can call their own and be a country where you can get around and enjoy the, the environment, the um, uh, fresh green kind of environment that we've got. Um, that's got to be where we're heading. At the moment, we're kind of heading in various other directions that are not so healthy for us and we've got to kind of rein that in and make sure this is a place full of opportunity, great place to live and work, um, raise a family, be safe be happy, have a decent life. Mm, and I suppose if I can just summarise that as well then, um, to make sure that I've got it right, um, in terms of housing, you're looking to increase the supply of houses by, by building yes. them themselves, um, try and decrease price, make it more affordable for young professionals to be able to own homes, especially in Auckland, um, where it's about 10 times income. Um, in terms of education and the future of work commission, um, it's, we had Francis Valentine from the Mind Future um, Lab on here yep. uh, a couple of weeks ago, specifically talking about 
how um, young professionals don't necessarily have the skills and young people aren't being taught the skills that are necessary for the for the future of work, um, yep. in ter- especially in terms of resilience. And um, Justine Monroe from 21C is also speaking about that. Um, so ensuring that young people have the skills to be able to get jobs of the future. Um, yep. And then lastly, in terms of infrastructure, I mean, that, that impacts everybody, but ensuring that we've got the quality of life um, so that we're not constantly stuck in traffic and that we can get around our diverse cities. Have I got that right? That's exactly, that's, that, that's pretty much it. Absolutely right, yeah. It's all, it's all, all those things have to come together so that we can say of New Zealand in 20 years' time or whenever, that this is a place where you get the opportunity to succeed. Whatever you want to do, um, there's opportunity there. You stand on your own two feet. You can earn for yourself. And everybody gets that chance. And not everybody's going to be you know, a rocket scientist like Peter Beck, but everybody, there will be a place for everybody and something for everybody to do who wants to work and can work um, in a country that's just a fantastic place to be. They've got places to go to relax um, have your leisure time in um, and societies, communities, towns, cities that are livable and enjoyable to live in. Mm. In terms of the future of work, because it's so topical at the moment, with a lot of social businesses and and charities getting on board to try and um, re-educate teachers or get some of that content out to teachers, um, what would the Labour Party, if it were in government, um, do to try and change um, the education sector? How would you do that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a big task, and we'll have some specifics that we're announcing over the next few weeks. But I think when you look at, you know, you, you want, we, we know that the biggest determinant of educational success is the quality of the teacher in front of kids. And at the moment, we're kind of burdening them down with a whole lot of bureaucracy, and we've got national standards and those sorts of things, not something we agree with. You've got to give teachers the chance to teach and inspire kids. And you look, I've spoken to a heap of teachers, and they say, you know, just just unleash us from this stuff, this bureaucracy, and let us teach with kids and spend time with kids and nurture them. I think there's an exception that, of course, kids all, you know, they got they develop at different times and stages, and you've got to have enough flexibility in your learning environment that you're giving all kids a chance. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, you want a system too where teachers get the opportunity for personal development, which they, they don't a lot at the moment. Um, and that you've got principals who have the ability to manage manage good performance, create good environments for teachers so that they can excel in that. Um, and uh, there's other things too that to help young people while they're sitting in high school. We're talking about professionalising the careers advice in high schools so that young people and their parents are getting good advice right throughout. They're getting the right electives in terms of NCEA. And by the time they finish school, they're getting good advice about the options out there for them, about what they can do, other training they can do. And get away from this idea that kind of the default decision after year 13 should be you go to university or polytech and do a degree, that actually there's a heap of other things you can be doing. One of our policies is a young entrepreneur scheme. I know that there are young people who... Uh, very creative, got amazing ideas, for whom university would be a stultifying experience. But put them, hook them up with a mentor, give them a, a, a crash course in uh, basic sort of business skills and business practices, and and take this idea, seize it, and turn it into something, and and um, draw on the entrepreneurial skills. You, you can't train people to be entrepreneurs necessarily. I can you know learn some basics, but people who have that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and and want to harness it and use it and do good things about it and just get a bit of guidance on the way. I think there's huge scope to do that because I think that um, if not your generation, certainly those coming through now, 
think much more entrepreneurially about the world than ever was my the case with my generation. I've seen 16-year-olds thinking and doing some amazing stuff. Um, I want to harness that that um, spirit within themselves and not think that um, they just have to go off to university and do a degree and find that actually that isn't satisfying and it's not the best for them as well. Mm, and it's a very progressive view, I think, of, of education um, that, we're, that we're talking about now. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, so, some people listening may, may not know a lot about yourself or the Labour Party uh, or its background. So what would you say at its core level, what does the Labour Party stand for? We, we stand for, you might, the old-fashioned term would be the dignity of work, which in modern terms might be just the dignity of being able to earn for yourself. Use your skills, your talents, your time, what you have to contribute. Earn a decent living and, and be fairly rewarded for what you do. As I say, not everybody's going to be um, a corporate bigwig, um, but fairly rewarded for what you do so you can live a decent life. And and that sense of fairness that I think is that New Zealanders are generally imbued with. You know, as a small country, we, we like to see people doing well. We like to see people excelling in their chosen fields. But we like the idea that everybody's got a chance to, to kind of get ahead. And that that's also goes back to the other issue about the importance of a good education system, that regardless of the circumstances you're born into, whether you're rich or poor, Māori, Pākehā, you know, rural, urban, um, that you have an education system that gives you the means and the skills to get ahead, to chase your dreams and fulfil your ambitions. And that's that's the stuff that Labor has stood for. You look at our track record in government going back to 1935. We've delivered the basic, what I call the social foundations, housing, education, good health. You get those things right, and it's a springboard for people to do amazing things in their lives. That's what we want to see. If I may say something a little controversial, um, it almost Please. sounds quite similar to what David Seymour told me about the the values of the the ACT Party. And and my point around this uh, um, around that is this: that uh, uh, what I find increasingly, having talked now to all of the leaders, is that you all more or less want the same thing. Where it really differs is how you get there. Yeah, I think that is, and I think it's also being honest about some of the rules that you might sign up to. So, look, David's an articulate chap. I, you know, I've got a lot of respect for David. We might be politically different, um, but I think what his party represents is a, a set of rules and the way of doing things that they kind of look like it's fair for everybody, everybody, but in the end, it plays to those with the means already, those who are already established, those who have access to whether it's financial capital, cultural capital, whatever, um, and they get an advantage. And I guess, look, I'm never ever going to say of people who do well and excel and and, and succeed, whether it's financially or whatever, um, and I want them to do that. But I, I actually want everybody to have that chance. And sometimes, in fact, not just, sometimes it's more than sometimes, the state has to intervene in ways to give people that fair start, that fair chance. And that's where I think we differ. Mm. While, we're, while we're on this topic, here is a question that I, I'm only going to ask you, you and the Prime Minister, um, since that you, you're the two most likely to become Prime Minister after this election cycle, which is a, is a big question that um, I think every Prime Minister needs to answer for themselves, but is so really asks, which is what is the role of government? And the reason I ask this is that some people believe it's to maximise the utility of the country. Mm. Others believe that it's only to provide services that the private sector can't, can't provide. So, so for you, Andrew, what is the role of government? Well, there are, because we are a democracy, and I guess we would say we are a party of social democracy, actually, it, it is about making sure the country, the nation state is coherent, that, um, that you know, people have a level of protection and security. That means they have a safe life and a good life. 
Um, and it's about making sure there are rules there that people can get on and do their things, enjoy the freedoms that, that you know, we want people to have. Um, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, um, and freedom to, you know, make your choices, for example, to go into business and succeed and do well. But what goes with that also is recognising that creating that platform for success um, doesn't happen by individuals alone. It happens collectively, usually through government, in fact, pretty much entirely through government. Um, so government has that sense of collective responsibility. And, and for that reason, it is right for the government to say, all right, people do need to contribute and put something back, and it should be in accordance with their means to do so, which is why we have, you know, we support progressive tax systems. So, um, yes, the central government does have a role, and it goes beyond, as some, I think, of the hard right would say, just defence and security I would say it is about social cohesion, and that does mean that you know we work on ensuring their opportunities. So we do make those sort of social provisions, like good housing, like education, like health. Um, and where where the labour market fails to provide work, that we are working to make sure that people are usefully occupied. It is that thing about you know the, the dignity of being able to do something, exercise your skills, um, and be part of the community. And the way modern society is at the moment. Uh, for a lot of people, if they're not working, certainly if they're not earning um, or, or learning um, and they're increasingly marginalised from society, that's not good in the long run. So, you know, I think central government does have a role to deal with that and overcome some of that. Like most New Zealanders, I'm I'm sick of dirty politics, and uh, and I, I watch a lot of Question Time on TV. Um, not because it's very informative, but hell, it's very entertaining. So um, we've got a little segment, and I'll just move the camera around so you can see it. Where we've got, can you see the spinning game wheel? Yep, I can. Yep. So around here, um, we have all of the political parties currently in Parliament, except for Labour. And when we spin it, I would love to, for you to say something nice about one of the party's MPs that come up, something about the party itself, or one of the okay. policies that you in particular like. All right. We have the New Zealand National Party. The National Party, okay, all right. Well, um, you'd have to say it's been around a while, <laughs> so it's certainly shown endurance, but if I had to say something nice about one of the, the um, MPs, I had to say... One of the ministers who I have a lot of admiration for because he's done an amazing job is Chris Finlayson, who's the Minister of Treaty Settlements and Attorney General. He has a you know deep personal commitment to uh, you know seeing through those treaty settlements and achieving justice to this best extent you can, compensating for the you know, huge historical losses. But he is personally committed to it. The great thing is he involves opposition parties in that as well. Um, so the celebrations of those settlements, he doesn't just you know make it exclusive to the National Party and the iwi who are there. He involves us all in it. Uh, as Attorney General, he is very good at um, talking to us about the appointments of judges and those sorts of things. I think he is, look, we know that he is a good old-fashioned sort of conservative, um, but he's a conservative with a strong social conscience and, and I think a strong sense about a New Zealand um, and with the maturity, I think, that he's able to reach across the political divide and work constructively with us. So I have a lot of admiration for him. Fantastic. Look, I know we're time constrained, um, so I've got three last questions for you. Um, and just to give you the background on this one, 
we surveyed um, the country, all of the young professionals uh, organisations, and went out to their members and asked whether they had any questions for political party leaders. And we've got yep. 12 of the top ones, and we're going to select it um, in good old yep. Labour Party fairness by spinning the game wheel again. Excellent. And we have number seven, which is this. Mr. Little, what is it that gets you up in the morning ready for another tough day's work? Is it the promise of your own enriching, or do you have a vision to make New Zealand the best country it can be for all Kiwis? Be honest. Oh, absolutely. There, what gets me out of bed is that pursuing that sense of justice. I mean, the previous role I had, or roles, first as a union lawyer, then as a union secretary, when I had I had offers to go and work for big law firms and do things, and I always came back to what is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? It's the sense of building a more just New Zealand, and not just socially just, but economically just as well. So I'm, I'm utterly driven by that. And of course, in the political firmament, you've got to negotiate and navigate all the, the tricky spots and all the paraphernalia that goes with that. But if you ask me what I what my what I dream about for New Zealand, I go back to things I already said. You know, everybody has a place; they have something to do, place to live. Um, and and they can they feel as if they can genuinely trace their dreams and and of course having dreams in the first place because I started meeting a few people who who have a sense of having given up so very much a New Zealand that people can thrive prosper and do well in their own terms and feel good about it mm. and actually we've got time time for one more uh, which is number four which comes from comes from Ashley Elder from the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast and he said regarding Australia and New Zealand relations New Zealand continues to provide Australian citizens with full New Zealand citizen, citizenship rights um, but it's less and less the case for New Zealanders in Australia um, what, are, what are your thoughts or how can we address this? Yeah I know that this comes up and it's become up, come up more because of some of the changes recently um, harder to, in terms of immigration immigration by Kiwis to New Zealand, Kiwis to Australia and getting citizenship has always been difficult um, but we have a huge New Zealand community there what I don't, what I'm not into is kind of retaliatory measures or thinking right well they're, not, they're treating us that way, we're going to treat their people this way as well um, we just got to, you know Australia is our nearest neighbour, our friendliest uh, kind of world ally so we've just got to continue to strengthen and build that relationship they are reliant on a whole heap of Kiwis. A lot of the, the, their industries you know, wouldn't survive without us, so we should be proud of that. But um, we've just got to continue to build that relationship and negotiate better conditions for Kiwis who are there. That's uh, you know that's certainly what I'm determined to do. Fantastic. And the last question that we ask every every party leader, which is there's a there's a woman driving along the motorway, there's a guy in the gym listening to this podcast, young professionals, each of them, and they're thinking, why should I vote for the New Zealand Labour Party? What would you say to them? I'd say that after nine years of the national government, there's a whole heap of challenges that New Zealand has to face. Getting housing right is one of them. Getting a health service, especially mental health services. It's been kind of the poor cousin for the health system for far too long. And I'm getting some really horrific stories. A lot of preventable preventable stuff you know, happening. I think when it comes to education, we are totally dedicated to building that education system to be a launch pad for that, those next generations to get into the 21st century and 22nd century with the amazing range of uh, intellectual and personal and social skills that you need to survive. That, that's that's what I want to do in government because my vision for New Zealand is one where everybody gets a chance to stand on their own two feet and have a great life. 
Labour Party leader Andrew Little, thank you for your time. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Now, if you're keen for more content like that, please hit subscribe in your favourite podcast listing app. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud. We're pretty much on all of them. Uh, Also, check us out on Facebook. We are NZ Young Professionals Podcast or also on nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Until next time. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.